You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Still the same Hello and welcome to another episode of Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today, Matthew Block, filling in for Nathan Gilmore this semester. I'm editor of the Canadian Lutheran Magazine and communications manager for the International Lutheran Council, and I live in Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. Joining me for today's conversation is someone whose name you'll be more familiar with, Michael Farmer, one of your longtime hosts. Michael, how are things going out in Sandy Springs, Georgia? Uh, They're good, Matthew. How are you? I'm I'm all right. I'm all right. It's been uh, sitting around minus 40 the last three or four days here, and I don't have to even say whether that's Celsius or Fahrenheit, so that's kind of nice. <laughs> oh my! Because <laughs> you know, it's cold in both. <laughs> I've been in I've been in minus 40 Fahrenheit, and uh, it's that is that is something like axles break spontaneously if you're not careful, and and you can't melt the ice off the road because it's below it's below the melt point even of the salt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also with us today, as you heard, is David Grubbs, Assistant Professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how are you? Pretty well, pretty well. It's, it sounds like you've got the bleak midwinter up there, and I've just got a rather balmy 50, mid-50s morning uh, when I headed to work today. I was going to say, David, I didn't realize the time zones were such that it could be 5 o'clock here in morning in Houston. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) That's just the last time I was outside. Well, before we get into today's topic, uh, what should our listeners know about what's on the network this week, Michael? Well, uh, it's another week where nobody has put their shows on the network calendar, so I don't know. I know that today, as we're recording, which is last Monday, uh, as you're listening to this, there was a City of Man with Carl Truman. Uh, and that's all I know. So if the other members of this network are listening uh, to the sound of my voice right now, please put your shows on the calendar. Maybe if we can figure out some other way to do it than the passive aggressive what's on the network I, snippet. I could, I could just send an email to them and say, hey, put your, put your shows on the calendar. But you did, Michael, also have a chance to plug the podcast this morning on radio. Do you want to briefly mention that here, too? Yeah, I, I can I can mention that. I was on a, uh, a show in Mobile, Alabama called L.A. That's Lower Alabama Catholic Radio. They were kind enough to, to have me do a call in and talk about the podcast. So uh, maybe we have some people listening who, who first heard me on there. And, uh, you know, welcome. And the rest of you, if you uh, if you go to the uh, Christian Humanist Twitter account, CR Radio Network, uh, excuse me, CH Radio Network, there's a uh, there's a link to it there. Um, if you go to what was last Monday, the eighth, uh, there's a there's a link to listen to it. Well, uh, assuming all goes as planned, today's episode should be releasing on February sixteenth. 
And that happens to coincide with the birthday of the Lutheran reformer, Philip Melanchthon. And while Melanchthon is important in a number of areas, ranging from theology to education to the study of classical literature, he's perhaps best known today as the author of the Confessio Augustana, or the Augsburg Confession, the principal confession of the Lutheran tradition. And that's what we'll be looking at today. But before we get into the text of the Augsburg Confession itself, I thought it might be helpful to talk a bit more about creeds and confessions more broadly. The three of us are members of different church traditions. So speaking generally, what roles of creeds or confessional documents played in your personal faith as well as in the tradition of your church? Michael? Well, uh, we did an episode early in the uh, the history of this podcast, I think and we called it Creeds and Confessions, where David and I kind of argued in favor of the creeds to Nathan, whose, uh, whose Stone Campbell tradition is radically, I think this was his own language, radically anti-creed. Uh, no creed but Christ is their, is their slogan. So you, maybe you can go back and listen to that and hear more. But I, I, I will say that I have, since I, since I joined the Presbyterian Church in 2007, uh, many years ago, I have been very, very pro-creed as, as a kind of definer of orthodoxy. And in retrospect, it seems to me that the creeds, when I was a Presbyterian, functioned as something like a pre-magisterium to me. They, the, the magisterium holds the role in my theology now that the creeds did then, and for some of the same reasons. Just the idea that uh, you, you need some sort of external body in order to decide uh, what counts for the bounds of orthodoxy and heresy. And, and the creeds, especially the very early creeds, the, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, those, those seem like pretty good boundaries to me even today. Um, I, I would still say, uh, Protestant and Catholic aside, if you don't believe the Apostles' Creed, I, I, I don't consider you a Christian. Um, and, and from there, you kind of build out what, um, what various traditions you belong to. So if, you know, I'm perfectly fine if a Lutheran says, oh, well, if you don't believe the Augsburg Confession, you're not a Lutheran. Um, I suspect most Lutherans would not say, if you don't believe the Augsburg Confession, you're not a Christian. Um, and I, I would say the same thing with some reservations about the Catholic Catechism. And I say with some reservations because it's a document of some 700 pages. You know, it's it's it's, it's not the same thing as even a, the 27-page 20, Augsburg Confession that's since before me. So, you know, I, I think you can probably be a Catholic without believing every word of the Catechism just because there's so very many words in it. Um, but the Apostles' Creed is, you know, quite short and quite broad and seems to me a pretty good definer of Christianity. David, what do you think? Well, I wasn't brought up Stone Campbell, but I was brought up Southern Baptist. And uh, No Creed But the Bible has, uh, in many Southern Baptist circles for a very long time, been the uh, the the motto. Though You were going to say the creed, weren't you? Yeah, I was going to. I was going to. Um, though it's it's not really a creed. It's only kind of like one one statement. It's, it doesn't really doesn't really function. Anyway, God said it. I believe it. It's, that said it. <laughs> it's an axiom, axi- axiomatic. Uh, so that there, there's been some some shift in that, which um, I'll, I'll tip my hat at in uh, in a little bit. But I never encountered any any creeds, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, none of the Ecumenical creeds, um, 
uh, growing up, uh, nor does uh, the Southern Baptist Church have a confession as such. Uh, it has a document called the Baptist Faith and Message, um, which serves the the functional role of saying uh, – serves the functional role of providing a kind of unity document around uh, the different autonomous congregations that, that – Compo- that comprise, compose, anyway, that form the Southern Baptist Church, it, it helped, it gives them something they can unify around for the purposes of cooperative mission and co- cooperative education. Um, but they don't necessarily say, uh, not adhering to everything in the Baptist faith and message doesn't make you a Baptist, it just means you can't cooperate with us on these things. Um, so, so that was kind of the context in which I was raised, and I don't think I even knew about the Baptist faith and message, message growing up. Um, however, uh, when I was in middle school, my, church, my family began attending a non-denominational Bible church that had an explicit doctrinal statement. And so the idea that there is an actual written down list of things we believe that, uh, that is the – defines the boundaries for the the group that I'm in. That was something that I encountered in that form. And then when I started, uh, I I think it might have been not until I was in college that I really encountered um, things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. I may have encountered them earlier in some form, but I I don't recall that. And so I kind of came to those creeds and seeing them as as sort of um, my church's doctrinal statement, but larger. Um, I didn't realize that I had it very differently, uh, kind of historically backward, uh, because the creeds were, as, 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 as you said, Michael, they were statements of this is what Christians believe. If you don't believe this, you're not one. Um, my church never would have said that of, of those who disagreed with particular points in the doctrinal statement. Um, it was simply at our church. These are the these are the stances we take on these issues, and there might be stances you could you could take other than those and still be a Christian in general, just not uh, not holding uh, the the teaching office or the office of ruling elder in our church. But the creeds the creeds are kind of the firm boundaries that mark. Um, not just which team you are, but whether or not you're even on the playing field. Uh, and I think that's maybe maybe the difference as I came to learn it, as the difference between creeds and confessions. If you're outside of the creed, you're not on the field. Um, but confessions are jerseys. <laughs> um, I like that. Yeah. So later in attending a, a PCA church um, when I was in uh, – in the PhD program in at the University of Georgia, I encountered the Westminster Confession, uh, which I found uh, very interesting, and I liked its its uh, its thoroughness. Um, you know, didn't agree with everything because I was still you know still very Baptist in a lot of my thinking, but I appreciated that it was a it was a church that showed its work, and that's another thing that I came to value. Um, not just creeds, but also confessions for that uh, as spaces in which a confessional body um, sort of does its math in in public, shows how it came to its uh, the answers that it that it derives on those different questions, so that you can 
you know, so that you can come at it and, and just sort of look at the confession and see, okay, this is what they believe for these sorts of reasons. So when I come to the Augsburg Confession, um, I'm very happy to see that kind of a document. Um, now I get into a Southern Baptist church where um, usually a couple times a month um, we inc- we recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed uh, as part of the Sunday morning worship. And uh, for a lot of people in the room, that's something that they're new to. Uh, but for me, it's 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 kind of it's an exciting um, reminder every time it happens that um, we didn't invent Christianity, you know, yesterday, uh, and its borders don't stop at the edge of our uh, our little plot of land on Farm to Market 1464. Um, Huh. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of creeds and confessions. Um, Carl Truman has a book called The Creedal Imperative, uh, which is a, a very good uh, reflection on the the value of creedal confessional documents um, as uh, ex, as explicit forms of 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 doing theology, um, and then. A recent book that I did a profiles interview on uh, was called um, Baptist in uh, Baptist in the Christian Tradition. Interviewed a guy named Matthew Emerson about that, and uh, in that particular text, they delve into some confessional, um, some Baptist confessions from the 17th century, in particular, that are actually an explicit dialogue with Presbyterian confessions, Lutheran confessions, as well as the ecumenical creeds. So um turns out that the way that I was raised as a Baptist um, was also a novel thing within the history of Baptists. <laughs> Do you have a sense of how typical it is today, David? Because I, I assure you that in my Southern Baptist church, we never read a creed. And I don't remember ever being told they exist. The first time I ever heard the term Nicene Creed was in a song by the Lost Dogs. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how widespread it is, but I see I see more of it um, as time goes. And uh, Matthew Emerson, who I just mentioned, uh, he and uh, he he's part of I believe they call it the Center for Baptist Renewal, which is essentially a Southern Baptist, um, uh, not really a think tank, but more like a, a a coterie of thinkers, a coterie of theologians. Um, collaborating on what is essentially a resourcemal project uh, for for Southern Baptists, um, sort of try, trying to return return this tradition to to connections with um, what comes before and what happens beyond uh, the boundaries of of our Southern Baptist memories. Hmm. Well, I'm a, a Lutheran, which is perhaps no surprise to anyone listening, since I chose the Augsburg Confession to talk about. Uh, growing up, I would have recited the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed every Sunday, one of them at least. And uh, the only exception to that would be on Trinity Sunday once a year when we would read the Athanasian Creed, which we haven't mentioned yet, oh, but wow. is a another one of the long, early creeds. It's the longest and uh, the least familiar, I think, of the creeds today. 
Mm-hmm. So the creeds, for me at least, um, they were part of my my upbringing, and their formulations tend to still well, they've always really played a major part in, in my thinking about the Christian faith. Um, but as you mentioned, there's a distinction between creeds and confessions, and uh, for Lutherans, we have a bunch of additional confession confession doc uh, confessional documents. Pardon me. Uh, that we consider authoritative in the life of the church. So one of them we're talking about today is the Augsburg Confession, um, but probably the one that's the most well-known, at least among Lutherans in the pews, would be the small catechism of Martin Luther. Uh, it's a very brief, straightforward question and answer summary of Christian doctrine, focus, focusing on six chief parts like the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, Lord's Supper, and Confession and Absolution. And uh, most Lutherans historically would have studied this document uh, during their confirmation process. But uh, as a broader church, Lutherans also recognize um, a number of other documents, the, the Augsburg Confession, the Small Catechism, the Large Catechism, the Apology to the Augsburg Confession, the Treatise on the Power and the Primacy of the Pope, the Small Cald Articles, the Formula of Concord, all of these documents, uh, together with the three ecumenical creeds, are bound together in a book called the Book of Concord. And uh, historically, they're, uh, they've been considered authoritative in the life of the church, although some Lutherans today would, depending on which church tradition you belong to, might uh, consider them more or less authoritative. Um, and I, I guess the, the one thing I'll say here, for anyone who comes from a background that doesn't uh, have a, a creedal or, or a confessional background, it's important to note that, especially among Protestants, the accept, accepting these kind of things were, was never considered an alternate authority to Scripture, but rather things that were true because they faithfully reflected the teachings of Scripture. So that's the way that Lutherans would look at something like the Augsburg Confession. It really is um, a, equivalent or at least parallel to the Catholic Magisterium. So it's it's not that... It's not that it goes against the scripture, but it's the the correct interpretation of scripture through tradition. Mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. the t the t word's not um, <laughs> not so persuasive to Lutherans. Oh no, I'm I'm okay with the concept of tradition in the way that you're uh, explaining it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean we're not gonna we won't get too too much into uh, the, the two sources of authority right. kind of concept. Um, right now, um, although I'm, I'm game to do that episode sometime. Uh, but let's, let's turn to the Augsburg Confession itself now. In 1530, Emperor Charles V summoned the rulers of evangelical or Lutheran territories to, rep- to present their doctrinal views in the hope that a resolution could be found to the doctrinal conflicts of the day. But 1530 is a long ways off from 1517, which is when most people, I think, traditionally date the beginning of the Reformation. So, David, could you just give us a brief sketch of what's been going on over the past 13 years? What's what's led us up to this point? Sure. And I, I will try to be as brief as I can. But, man, these are some really full years. <laughs> so <laughs> just, 15, just give us the highlights. <laughs> 1517, 95 theses we all know and love. Um, may or may not have been nailed on a door, but in any way, um, the the gauntlet for debate was thrown down. Was thrown down, um, in particular for uh, the ways that uh, uh, the the indulgence indulgences were being sold, um, and 
Luther saw that as compromising, and in particular, the the uh, confession, uh, proper confession, and proper um, repentance, proper penitence. So uh, the controversy that rises out of that leads to, you know, for the next couple years, um, debates between him and representatives of uh, representatives of, of the Pope. And demands from various levels of the church that he recant and he and him refusing to do so. That leads to 1520. Uh, the Pope condemns him in a papal bull, and in 1521, Charles V outlaws him. Um, that's the uh, the very famous uh, Council of Worms, or Worms, as you know, you'll sometimes hear people, someone say it. Um, but it's it's Germany, guys. W's go V. Um, Charles V outlaws Luther, and so uh, the elector of Saxony, Frederick the Wise, who is uh, the, the, the ruler of the territory where Luther lives and, and teaches, um, basically hides him for the next year. Uh, he, goes, he goes underground. Um, for the next few years, Luther's reforms are sort of proceeding under, under the protection of Frederick the Wise. Um, as well as uh, while other reform movements are beginning in, in other uh, places in Europe, um, Zv uh, Zwingli's being one of the important ones. Um, but things are not all well. Uh, 1524, there's a peasants' war. Um, there are also various uh, various groups pushing the reform uh, the reform movement further in more radical directions. Um, groups that came to be, uh, some of whom came to be known as Anabaptist for their practice of uh, baptizing uh, adults um, again instead of uh, instead of accepting their their baptism um, as infants. Um, Luther weighs in on these. So so as the as time is going, um, it's not just that he's opposed to. Uh, opposed to the, the the Church of Rome, there are also these other movements um, uh, who you might say are on the other side of him that he's also critiquing, also rejecting. Uh, these That sort of comes to a head in 1529 at the Marburg Colloquy when uh, Luther and, and Zwingli and some others meet in order to try to get um, some of these main reformations at least on the same page so that they can cooperate but they are unable to come to terms, um, particularly over the nature of the sacrament of the Eucharist. And then the Turks besiege Vienna, which means now this, uh, this, all of this sort of internecine conflict um, that was both political and religious um, within Europe, it's now an international situation. Um, the Ottoman Turks are threatening on the eastern frontiers. Charles V needs a united uh, uh, group uh, to back him in resisting that. And so in 1530, uh, he wants these distinct religious parties in his realm to formulate their doctrine so that they can find some unity that he can establish a coalition around that can that can successfully oppose the Turks. Um, some some reformers in different parts of, of the Holy Roman Empire's territory uh, were skeptical of this, but in particular, John of Saxony, uh, Frederick had passed away, and so the the that the principality, uh, the, the the role of prince in in Saxony had passed to his brother John. Um, 
insisted that Luther's Luther's folks participate. And so Melanchthon um, is uh, is the one who wrote this particular confession. Um, there's stories that could be told about um, how it's delivered to the emperor um, and uh, the degree to which um, the Lutheran, um, you know, the, the Lutheran representatives, you know, really wanted everything to be public and above board and, you know, in, in the eyes of the masses. Um, while uh, Charles, I think, wanted to have some some backroom conversations that would um, be able to present a nice, neat uh a nice neat conclusion while, you know, with all of the public, you know, not, not being able to see how the sausage was made. Um, but in any event, uh, the Augsburg confession is, uh, the Lutherans, uh, attempt to both play ball and stand their ground in a certain kind of way. Um, offering, uh, both the, uh, the olive branch of peace by emphasizing a lot of things that they've got in common with their neighbors, but also being very firm to not back off of the ways um, in which they've had uh, conflict and disagreement. So, yeah. That seems a, a pretty good summary to me. Uh, Michael, is there anything you would want to add? Uh, no, indeed. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe the the one the one thing I would uh, highlight here is how um, this event is a little different than the Diet of Worms because back then when when Luther's called to appear before Charles V, um, it's one man who's kind of on trial, but the Diet of Augsburg, as you say, it's different. It's the the German princes, the the evangelical or Lutheran princes, whatever term you want to use, um, that are kind of here to to talk about the faith. So there's a distinction here. Uh, between one man's confession at Worms and the confession of evangelical Lutheran Protestantism um, at Augsburg. Luther himself isn't at the Diet in Augsburg, which is why I think the final formulation of things comes down to Melanchthon. Um, but that's because he's excommunicated and under the imperial banners, which which you mentioned, David. So he's, he's somewhere else uh, safely away, but he's keeping abreast of things via letter. And, I, and while Melanchthon is the author of this document, he also does, I have to say, incorporate some earlier texts that he and Luther and a few other reformers worked on together, although the final formulation of the Augsburg Confession is surely Melanchthon's. Um, but one of the things you said, David, was that uh, the Augsburg Confession is, to some extent, an, an example of the Lutherans trying to play ball while standing their ground. In that sense, we might say that it's an early example of what may be called an ecumenical text. Michael, in what ways does the Augsburg Confession attempt to find common ground with their opponents and preserve the unity of the church? Yeah, I too was struck by the ecumenism of this confession. It's not at all what I expected. I, which, which Is it the Heidelberg Catechism that calls the Pope the Antichrist? I was expecting something um, more like that. Uh, and I was, <laughs> that that kind of shows up in some later confessional documents. Uh, the small called articles, I think, is one that uh, where Luther uses that term. But this is uh, this is a little bit more winsome um, than that. I, I, there's there's a couple things I notice um, about, about his about its uh, ecumenism. Uh, one is that they begin. He begins. It begins 
with the things that pretty much all Christians believe. So he's starting with things that are relatively non-controversial. So the the nature of God being three persons um, in in one essence, uh, the nature of original sin, the nature of Christ with the two natures in a single person. So he, he's beginning with these things that even the Roman Catholic Church in in the 16th century is not going to disagree with and so he's he's building common ground with them before he um before he springs some of the uh the more controversial doctrines um on them which i i see as beginning with article four of justification but even his treatment of justification left me wondering um because i I, I don't think you can actually synthesize the the Lutheran view of justification and the Roman Catholic view, but um, Melanchthon, Melanch how do you pronounce that name, Matthew? Melanchthon? You can Melanchthon yeah, is there, I think the typical English. Yeah. There we go. Melanchthon. Um, he he doesn't seem seem like he's out to to rub Roman Catholics' face in in the view of justification. And, and in fact, I think you could read this and come away thinking, oh, well, you know, a certain sort of Catholic would probably agree with him there. The other thing I notice is that when he condemns people, it tends to be Anabaptists rather than Roman Catholics. And when he does it, he's very clear about what he's condemning them for. So there's not a blanket condemnation of Anabaptists or Donatists or whoever. He really, he's really, he really goes after the Anabaptists, but it's always for this particular doctrine. And here's why. And I don't know, maybe if Nathan were here, who is much more Anabaptist than the rest of us, maybe he would, um, maybe he would, he would see that as more dismissive than I do. But to me, it seems like he's at least being fair in the way he's condemning them, even if he uses the word condemn. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really was impressed by the text's uh, ecumenism. I was not expecting it. And uh, as we'll see in a few minutes, I went through and marked which articles I agreed with. And it, it was it was way more than I expected to. So hmm. um, that's, that's pleasant. <laughs> David, would, uh, would, did you see anything else in the text that you might want to draw attention to on the ecumenical side? There is a point that I'm going I'm to talk a little bit about it, uh, about it later. Um, but one of the things that, that, that he does is to uh, – frequent quotations from the church fathers are, are, are scattered throughout here. Yes. And if you read the um, – if you read his apology or his defense of the Augsburg Confession written later, there's even more of that. So, um, the, the idea that, um, you know, he, he's not, he's not just appealing to scripture, but also appealing to, um, voices from the, the tradition who he regards as, as supporting, um, supporting those positions. And so that, that also is a kind of, uh, a kind of unifying move, though. I, I think it also shifts it in, a, in, in, in other directions as well that I'll, that I'll speak on. But I, I, I like that. Uh, I, I think it's really important to say that, you know, your, your point, Matthew, that um, this is not Martin Luther standing here telling us, you know, here I stand. I can't say any other. Right. He's not farting um, in the p face of the pope. Yes, this is. This is. L rulers, leaders, princes um, 
who really do want to cooperate. They just assume Europe not, you know, be conquered by Ottoman Turks. <laughs> like, like the, you know, I, I think they're willing to uh, provide Charles V the military assistance that he's looking for, but they want to do it with their integrity. Um, and Charles V wants to do it with his integrity too, because he's drawn a line in the sand. Very recent, a very recent line. And if he goes back on it and says, ah, JK, you guys can join our army and it's all cool. Um, that also is a problem. So, um, you know, I, I, in a lot of ways, it, it, especially starting on those points of agreement, Michael, it, it really does, it, it does that effective rhetorical, t- task of getting your audience to start nodding their head at the beginning right and try to see how far you can go before they stop <laughs> like i said it was about four uh, articles for me <laughs> yeah. it's kind of interesting you mention some of that because i agree with you totally that's what melanchthon's trying to do he's trying to build that kind of common ground by showing how much they already held in common part of the reasoning why he felt it necessary to do it was uh, in the lead up to the Diet, there was a new text circulated, which basically accused the Lutheran Party of of holding heresy on all of these kind of points. Oh, interesting. And also, there was a, a strong. Um, it was it was very common at the time for Luther and the Lutherans to be lumped in with all of the reforming movements of the day, the Radical Reformation, mm. the Anabaptists being a a particularly yes. notable one. So they have to distinguish that not only uh, do we have common ground with you, we believe the same kind of things, but we reject the same things that you reject, that the church historic has rejected and that the church today is rejecting in, in the re- radical reformation. So they're, they're trying to foster this kind of um, agreement and demonstrate it. It is funny that uh, the Catholic, or not the Catholic, but the Roman party that was supposed to respond to this, they wrote something called the Confutation, but the emperor refused to accept the first version of it because it did try to say, well, we don't agree with any of these things, but they, the Lutherans have said it wrong on the doctrine of God. And the, the emperor said, no, this is, you're just making stuff up. You guys have to go back and actually deal with the text. <laughs> so they were forced to write a second version of the text. Boy, it's like freshman comp. <laughs> it kind of is. But, uh, at any event, then, the the, the uh, Augsburg Confession, from its perspective, it says that there's nothing that varies from the scriptures or from the Church Catholic or from the Church of Rome is known from its writers. So it's it's really making the case that, you know, we have the doctrine, uh, the, the primary doctrine in uh, common. And even the things that we disagree with, we're not saying they're doctrinal abuses. We're saying uh, we're not saying they're doctrinal differences. We're saying they're abuses yes, of custom. I, I noticed that as well. Um, mm. the, the, and, and as we'll talk about it in a few minutes, a lot of it is kind of the psychological use that some of these things get put to that they're objecting to, even more than mm-hmm. the traditions themselves. Mm-hmm. Almost that has persuaded me to become Lutheran. <laughs> <laughs> But there was an almost there, and that kind of reminds us that while this was intended as an ecumenical overture, it ultimately did fail to breach the divide. So, David, what are some of the differences between the positions of the Augsburg Confession and Roman Catholicism? Or if we want to put it another way, um, if this document is Catholic, as it claims to be, what marks it as evangelical Catholic or Lutheran as opposed to Roman Catholic? 
So there are a lot of disagreements uh, that are from the the debates of the previous you know decade plus. A, a lot of those debates are referenced here, um, sometimes in the same terms, but usually not at the same length. And uh, a, a good deal of the heat is turned down, um, which is which is an important thing to note. Um, I, I kept remembering as I was reading it, uh, Matthew, the, the the comment about you know Luther thundering and Melanchthon scattering flowers. Um, there's there's a little bit of thunder in here, but uh, not not nearly as much as as could be. So differences are referenced, uh, many disagreements. But um, they are often framed not just a disagreement on the particular doctrinal stance that the Lutherans or the evangelicals had assumed uh, over against um, the the representatives of of the Pope, but that they were disagreeing about the Catholicity of those opinions. Because uh, something that that's insisted on in many places in the Augsburg Confession is not just that the Lutherans are right on uh, that, that their belief is, is doctrinally or is a, is biblically warranted, but also that it's, that it is historically warranted and that it is in harmony with that, that, that larger, that larger tradition that we, that we call Catholicity. And so they are countering uh, in, in the, in the uh, text, they're countering accusations of novelty um, and so that's one of the functions that, that not just the citations of scripture, but also the citations of church fathers, especially Augustine and Ambrose. Um, it's important that they're citing Augustine and Ambrose because those are two major Latin fathers, um, Ambrose, um, conducting his ministry in Italy itself and Augustine being arguably the most influential of the fathers in the Western tradition. Um, so he's he the they're they're being cited as warrant for doctrines that the Lutherans are are um, uh, are holding, but which are being called by uh, the the papal the papal legates, the papal representatives. Uh, they're being called on those points specifically as as novel, as new doctrines, um, as not Catholic doctrines, and so the disagreement. Um, at many points is not just over who's right in biblical terms, but who's actually Catholic. I, that I thought was, was, was really interesting and not at all what a Baptist would do, right? That, that's the point at which the Baptist would say, I don't care about your tradition. Let's talk about the Bible. Um, but Melanchthon very clearly does care about um, what the fathers say and whose side the fathers are on. So, um, in particular, you know, the, the article on, uh, oh, which one is it? The, the article on good works, uh, has, has a good bit of, uh, quotations, um, from the fathers. Uh, you know, there, there's a, a um, a continued insistence that, uh, the, the fathers n- never saw the work works as um, justifying in themselves, but rather uh, as things that flow out of um, flow out of a forgiveness that is prior to that. Um, and you know, quoting uh, Ambrose on that point. 
So, yeah, uh, the the role of works in salvation is a, is an issue. Justification is an issue, but but is not dealt with quite as much. I wonder if that's one that um, they f- maybe Melanchthon felt either felt had been handled, or um, I do know that there were there were some even in the pre-Tridentine Roman Church who were more sympathetic to the ways that Lutherans were formulating what they believed about justification. That that there there were some in, there were some in the Roman side who said, but yeah, we do believe that you're justified by faith. But say a little bit more about how works fit into that. Um, I'm wondering if Melanchthon doesn't want to poke that one too hard because there might have been some sympathetic listeners on the other side who just the just statements on justification didn't rile them up. Um, taking the Eucharist in two kinds as opposed to simply receiving the bread, uh, the intercession of saints, they're going to pick a fight about that. Um, so so there's a number of a number of those points that they'll bring up. But again, they're having the, uh, he wants to have the argument about whether or not the Lutheran position um, or the Roman position, which of them is, has a better claim to Catholicity, not which one has a better claim to being biblical. Right. Mm-hmm. Michael, did you have uh, anything that you saw as well that you wanted to talk about on this topic? Well, like I said, I mean, there's there's ones I agree with and ones I'm not sure I disagree with and ones I am sure I disagree with, and and so I mean the one of the most obvious um, is is what David mentioned about the saints. He's very he's very against the quote unquote worship of the saints, which I, I won't go back over the ground of why I think um, why I think praying to the saints is is the right thing to do. I I, I talked we talked about that in uh, in an episode last uh, last semester. Um, and so our, our listeners can go back and listen to that if they really want to hear me go on about it. Um, there's that one. Uh, his his the, the the notion that um, there are no uh, n- no kind of observances that are necessary for salvation I think flies in the face of the Catholic idea of the of the holy day of obligation. If you skip if you skip a mass you're supposed to go to it's something you have to confess. I mean it's not going to send you to hell necessarily but you do you do have to confess it it is a sin um and actually it's interesting right now all the holy days of obligation in my in my um area at least have been suspended because of covid um but usually you're supposed to go to mass every sunday um or i think you can do saturday night uh if if you have to work sunday morning or whatever um and then there's also a, a series of days during the year you're supposed to go um, and, and and so I, I think the the confession pretty pretty clearly denies those. Um, one thing I wasn't sure about is whether he thinks the church forgives sins. He he says that the church. This is Article Twelve. The church ought to impart absolution to those thus returning to repentance. Um, I, I, I'm, it, it wasn't clear to me whether he thinks the church actually has the power to forgive sins. Or not, um, and the, the Catholic position is that the Church does have the power to forgive sins, following um, following Christ telling Peter, "What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven." Mm-hmm. That's uh, Lutherans would agree that the Church has the the uh, 
the office of the keys, the ability to forgive sin okay. on behalf of Christ. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's an area in which the Lutherans are closer to to the Catholics than um, than than other Protestants are. But yeah, I mean, I was mostly surprised by how much I I agreed with, and how much I I think doesn't really go against the Catholic Catechism in its current form. Now, the truth is that the Council of Trent happens between then and now, I believe, and so um, the the Catholics had their Counter Reformation, in which some of the things that they're complaining about were reformed a little bit, and then some were um, out and out rejected. Right? I mean. In, in some cases, the the Catholic Church doubled down, and in some cases, they did they did change some things a little bit because of um, because of Lutheran complaints. So, you know, I, I'm not an I'm not an expert on that stuff, so I don't want to talk about it anymore. But um, mm-hmm. I I, th- I think that's probably worth keeping in mind. This might have been a this might have seemed like a more anti-Catholic document in uh, at the time than it does now. But I I can't confirm or deny that. Mm-hmm. Not being no, I think, I think the, I think both of you get, get to some of the real key uh, subjects there. Um, I might say that I, I think the doctrine of justification does, uh, it, it is I think spelled out maybe not so much in Article Four, which is the ex- explicitly, uh, the article that's explicitly about justification, but it shows up again <clears throat> in the article on good works yeah. later on, yeah. and I think that. Um, I certainly think that the Lutherans have tried to be very careful in how they articulate the doctrine of justification, so I agree with that. But I don't think that there was a way for them to say it in such a way that the the Roman party could agree with it wholesale. Sure. Um, yeah. The, the yeah, participation and, in the participation in in grace is is a is a big divide, and I I, I get that. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, it's worth noting that uh, just briefly, there was, I mean, after after the um, presentation of this document and the presentation of the the Roman party's confutation of it, there was actually a, a committee struck that was attempting to try to find common ground uh, on these things. And um, we can overstate how much they got in, in common, uh, but there was a, a sense that a number of these things could be said to be reconcilable between the two parties at the time. They don't reconcile, as it happens, but they came close on a number of things, but sometimes the the closeness they came may have been more linguistic than in reality sometimes. I mean, that's, that's one of the arguments there. Matthew, am I it's misremembering worth... that in the last 50 years or so, the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church have had some sort of rapprochement about um, about justification by faith? That there was some sort of meeting where they came together about it. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a document that came out uh, called the the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification, which represented um, obviously the Roman Catholic Church, but also the the Lutheran World Federation or the Churches of the Lutheran World Federation, which is kind of mainline Lutheranism, and uh, they found an awful lot in common. Even the final articulation of the document notes that there are distinctions between the the Lutheran and the Roman Catholic understanding on justification. Um, And there were a lot of people on both sides who who weren't initially pleased with with the publication of the document. They both felt that they had sold too much to the other side. Um, But there's certainly a lot more in common now than there was then. It is also worth noting that about 40 years ago, 
there was a kind of a, a push in in German Catholicism to try to have the Augsburg Confession recognized mm-hmm. as a as a Catholic statement of faith. Wow. Um, it it didn't quite happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I would imagine not. <laughs> No, the the question was, or at least the first half of it, the doctrinal half of it, they thought maybe they could recognize as Catholic. And one of the people who was actually pushing for it potentially to be recognized as such was was Cardinal Ratzinger. Oh, interesting. Um, but he certainly understood Lutherans better than than any other pope, uh, recent or or historic, I would say. Certainly, but certainly eventually more he did than with, the pope in the 16th century. Popes I would think in so, the 16th yeah. century. <laughs> But uh, he did eventually withdraw from that position somewhat. Um, but it's it's a fascinating piece of, of uh, history in the history of ecumenism. And I think it's the kind of thing that did lead in time to something like the Joint Declaration. Mm-hmm. As I say, I don't think most Lutherans or most, uh, not most Lutherans, I would say that some Lutherans don't think that agreement has been made on that subject. And uh, uh, maybe I'll just leave it there. But it's certainly a lot closer than we used to be. Gotcha. Which... Which kind of, I think, ties into the to just another thing that we've been talking around a little bit, that uh, when when we look at this statement of faith, we see an awful lot that's perhaps closer to Roman Catholicism than other forms of Protestantism um, as to as to what Lutherans believe. Michael, what positions does the Augsburg Confession take that might surprise someone with just a cursory knowledge of the Reformation? And on the other hand, is there something that wasn't here that you would have maybe expected to see in a Protestant statement of faith? Well, I, I mean, it, I like the way you phrased the question, because in fact, the Augsburg Confession seems to have been written for people with only a cursory knowledge of the Reformation, right? Because so much of it is, um, well, people are saying that we we have thrown out um, the necessity of good works, or people are saying, because because he's 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 really trying to argue against being considered alongside the more radical reformers, and especially once again those Anabaptists, those crazy Anabaptists. So in in a lot of ways, this document is trying to build common ground with the Catholic Church rather than um, rejecting it, as I think we've um, as I think we've mentioned. Uh, so some of the things that surprised me a little bit, not knowing as much about Lutheranism as I ought to, uh, he says that private absolution ought to be retained in the churches, although in confession an enumeration of all sins is not necessary. Do Lutherans do confession still, Matthew? Now that's an interesting question because uh, the 20th century, I would say, not as much as we used to or should do, according to our confessional documents. I know Bonhoeffer tried to bring it specifically. back. Specifically, yeah, there's a there's there's a lot one could say, but yeah, the the confession officially calls for it. Some Lutherans practice it better and more faithfully than others, but technically, it's something that we subscribe to. Although, um, I think also in the the document, it also talks about the fact that you can just receive forgiveness from God, but that. We still require and retain uh, private confession and absolution. Today, you're more likely to see in a Lutheran church the general confession and absolution at the beginning of a church sure. service, sure. which would still require, you know, people to to be absolved before they come to the sacrament of the altar. But. Uh, so another thing that surprised me a little bit, and, and again, this is probably just my ignorance of Lutheranism, is that they they teach that baptism is necessary to salvation. Yep. That's still that's still a, that's still an operative belief in the Lutheran Church. 
Oh yeah, we teach baptism is salvific. That and that is for children. Yeah, well, I knew I knew they baptized children. It, it just it just seems weird that if it's uh, anyway, I don't want to get in a fight with you about justification, <laughs> so I'm going to drop that question. Um, let's see. Uh, there's there's an argument here about church authority. No one should publicly teach in the church or administer the sacraments unless he be regularly called, um, which, uh, again, that's very different than a lot of the more, um, uh, the less hierarchical, let's say, uh, Reformation movements, and especially uh, evangelicalism as we see today. It, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem like there's any kind of uh, necessary structure to some of these churches. Yeah, they they retained the importance of the uh, of ordination as a requirement for for service in the ministry in that sense. Um, it's anti post millennial. That didn't really surprise me because I I associate post millennialism with with the Anabaptists rather than with uh, with Lutherans or Calvinists. Uh, mm-hmm. I won't. Uh, I've written here. That's because it's the true doctrine. So I must be. Uh, I must have gotten. I must have gotten kind of angry. At the confession here. Uh, yeah. But most of the rest of the, my notes here are about uh, about things that I disagree with. So I would say those are the big ones that um, that uh, that that surprised me by how close they were to uh, to Roman Catholicism. David, did you spot any other uh, doctrines that were similar to Roman Catholicism? One, um, under the worship of the saints, um, of the worship of the saints they, and that's the those who, who are putting forth the Augsburg Confession as representing their faith and practice, they teach that the memory of saints may be set before us that we may follow their faith and good works according to our calling. Um, by doing that, um, they have preserved what if i remember rightly is still preserved in in the lutheran church which is some kind of of continued recognition of saints Um, yeah we we still have a saints calendar um obviously including some lutheran ones but also the the early church and the the medieval era yes so i mean so that's preserved um also uh under the uh, article 27 of monastic vows, while for the most part um, it, it is a, there is a critique of monasticism as it was practiced, but it's very carefully phrased to say um, what we're tr- what we are re- um, objecting to is what we regard as a a recent innovation and corruption of what was previously um, a valuable discipline um, refers to um, uh, I'm looking I'm looking for the exact quote uh, it refers to monasteries as a place where previously uh, pastors and bishops had been trained mm-hmm. um, they were so, schools of theology um, yes. profitable to the church I think is the phrase yeah so um if if you get the if you if your impression of of luther of the lutheran reform is one that's just going to you know 
burn down all the monasteries and and get rid of all of that certainly you can find quotes from luther where you might where where you would you would lead in that direction but this is a much more um a much more precise critique that i think leaves space for there being um a Lutheran reform of monasticism and it's still continuing. Right. And it's a critique that's not entirely unlike St. Francis's critique of, of monasticism or his reform of the mm-hmm. monastic system. So, I mean, the, the monastic system is open to all sorts of abuses and in fact is abused um, throughout history. And then every now and then you have somebody come along and reform it. Um, so yeah. I, I think, if, if things had turned out differently, Melanchthon could have been one of those reformers uh, instead of being associated with a movement that, that did just kind of um, get rid of them, from my understanding. There are no Lutheran well, monasteries. Is that right, Matthew? That's actually wrong. Oh, um, excuse me. Unlike the Church of England, which shut down the monasteries and convents and confiscated the land, there are multiple monasteries, uh, monastic communities that converted to Lutheranism and still exist to this day uninterrupted, if I understand correctly. Um, so there there are not very many in North America, and probably there aren't there many left in, in Germany or, or the Nordic countries. But the monastic communities were not forced to disband uh, in Lutheran territory. I, I guess I guess I just assumed they Neat. were because Luther himself um, married off all those nuns. Yeah. Well, th- again, that's that has to do more with the fact that these were nuns who felt that they had been forced into the convent right. rather than uh, making a, 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 an actual vow. And, and that is one thing that does change. Vows could change in the Lutheran order. So I think Lutheran monks could eventually decide that they had made a mistake and leave. Um, but, th- I mean, when you get some people who were put in as, as children or, or teenagers and never really felt they had had a chance to have taken the vow honestly... Um, Luther helped some of these people escape. Famously, he, he ended up marrying one when she refused to marry anyone else. But that's many years after the <laughs> Reformation had started. She was a she was a very strong person, <laughs> and the kind so of person. Yeah. Um, we, I think maybe the last one I might mention um, uh, is is one that I'm surprised didn't come up. Is actually the doctrine of the supper uh, the lord's supper lutherans oh, yes. teach the real, real presence, presence as well and I, um, i've we written i've written down what does that mean because i know that real presence means different things to anglicans than it does to roman catholics yeah so the the distinction here would be that uh, lutherans believe that the the bread and wine uh, uh during communion are, are really uh, that christ's body and blood are really present in these things what we would reject in kind of typical Roman Catholic teaching would be the specific philosophical articulation of how that happens. So we don't go for Aquinas' doctrine of transubstantiation. Um, we tend to allow for the mystery or, or really what happens before Aquinas on this subject. We're, we're comfortable with just saying it is the real presence. It's really there. We're not just talking about this uh, symbolism or spiritual uh, idea which you might kind of see in Calvin uh, we believe it's really there um, we just refrain from saying how that happens there's a there's a famous line by Luther later in life where he talks about he'd rather drink uh, Christ's blood with the with the, the Roman Catholics than 
than wine with Zwingli. I have heard that, but I've also heard that it's a myth. He actually said that? I had heard he said it. Perhaps I'm incorrect on oh, this I, one. I mean, I'll defer <laughs> to you. You're the uh, you're the Lutheran. Perhaps it's in the perhaps it's in the table talk. Which I mean, the table talk are things that students and friends wrote down. So they have varying levels of truthiness, gotcha. or truthfulness. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, and there are also things that he's saying while he's drinking beer with the Lutherans. So, you know, may, maybe not always the most studied version of his thought. Well, I just want to thank you guys a lot for taking the time to talk about the Augsburg Confession today. Before we wrap up, though, I'd like to ask if you have any final thoughts um, that you'd like to share with our listeners. Uh, Michael, do you want to start? Yeah, I can start. I'm interested here in Article 26 on the distinction of meats, um, which is a great title, uh, especially since we're recording right around dinner time. Uh, in Georgia, at least. Uh, he, he's talking here about Catholic fasting practices. And he says something that I think um, I think is not entirely unfair, uh, which is that the, the Catholic emphasis on fasting and fast days and other sorts of um, works of... Uh, a bodily abstention and things like that focus too much on external matters. Uh, and that, uh, sometimes even quote, Christianity was thought to consist wholly in the observance of certain holy days, rites, fasts and vestures. And I, I think that is a, um, I think that is a temptation for a, for a church that, that does, uh, promote, um, promote fasting and other, other sorts of, practices like that. Uh, and and I, I think what he's pointing out is a catechetical failure on the part of the medieval Catholic Church. If, if people really did believe that you went to heaven if you didn't eat meat on Fridays, uh, that's not what the Catholic Church has traditionally taught, but it probably is something that individual Catholics believed in the Middle Ages and, and you know, perhaps still today. So I think one of the one of the nice things as a as a as a Roman Catholic that a document like the Augsburg Confession um, can do is point out the the places where what people believe is not necessarily what they ought to believe, what the church actually wants them to believe, and and to, to note where that failure has taken and what you can do to kind of fix it. So um, that that section in particular, 26, I, I think reflects a catechetical failure on the part of the Catholic Church. And if, if that failure didn't exist, uh, the Lutherans and the Catholics might be a lot closer together than they were. Hmm. Hmm. Something that kind of branches off of that is a real concern with what the laity believe. Um, and in, in not just in what constitutes the um, uh, what, what what you might call the, the the profession of the laity or the confession of the laity, what doctrines they profess or how they understand them, but the ways that those doctrines land on them um, emotionally and psychologically. Uh, there's a there's a pastoral tone in a lot of these passages. Uh, if you look through. Um, you know, just I, I did a word search in the version that I was reading, 
and consciences are are referenced over 30 times um the notion of a of of a person being burdened by a belief um 11 times and frequently those terms came together with consciences being burdened and um and they were often in this context that that Michael just referred to in which um what may not have been the best articulation of the doctrine by a representative of of the church in Rome um but rather what people ended up hearing what people ended up believing and what that did inside of their soul um the ways that traditions that weren't necessarily wicked in themselves and which may have actually even been helpful um if articulated carefully and observed in the right sorts of ways um actually became very um very dangerous very misleading and and creating a, a sense of anxiety and burdenedness um in the laity when those traditions became the center of pious obedience um when knowing what's the calendar and what do i eat on which days and where do i go to say which prayers and do which things etc when that becomes the center of your piety um i i can i can see why um the 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 laity of that late medieval um time in which lutheranism is arising um would could be a very anxious time for someone who maybe is not um fine-tuned for mastering that kinds of that kind of minutia <laughs> um so uh, th- there's a big emphasis on not making essential for the laity what the what the scriptures do not make essential but that doesn't mean that you cannot make use of practices of traditions of of forms in worship or in instruction um that are that are useful and permissible but m- emphasizing which things are which things demand obedience and which things are um are useful and good and helpful but are not the center of pious obedience um that's something that comes up again and again and again and uh, it seems as if the confession um as if Melanchthon wants to say that we're already we're having an effect in the church um if you look at the beginning of uh of the article on uh on works it begins by by pointing out that since our adversaries have been admonished on these things they are now unlearning them and do not preach these unprofitable works as heretofore and so you know he's saying that i don't think that that our adversaries are preaching the way that they used to in response to the ways that we've critiqued it besides they begin to mention faith of which there was heretofore marvelous silence <laughs> they teach that we are justified not by works only but they conjoin faith and works and say that we are justified by faith and works this doctrine is more tolerable than the former one and can afford more consolation than their old doctrine um so you know melanchthon seems to seems to be observing that uh, you guys have actually altered the way you preach you've altered the way you teach and you've done it in a way that we appreciate because it's better for the people um as we might say the people in the pew 
Um, you, you're, you're teaching in a way that's better for their soul. You're bringing in, you're bringing in faith, which is trust in the work of Christ on the behalf of those who believe to win for them forgiveness in a way that they cannot win it for themselves. Um, you're, you're directing people towards that, um, in a way that's good for them. And, and it's kind of a backwards compliment, but it's still a compliment of kind. There's a, a German term uh, called Zielsorge, and it, it means basically this this idea that um, of care for a soul. So when we talk about the pastoral ministry, it's this idea that you're you're not just you know teaching doctrines, you're not just um, doing the rites of the church, although that's obviously all part of it, but that you're required to be a caretaker of souls. Um, and I think the Augsburg Confession in this kind of pastoral um, concern that you mentioned uh, really gets to that. Um, it, it's really concerned with making sure that people, that anxious, consci- ang- pardon me, uh, it's really concerned that anxious consciences should find consolation. Um, so it's, it's not all academic for them. But that about wraps up our uh, time for discussion today. Uh, I want to just uh, say, if anyone wants to read the Augsburg Confession, uh, you can find it online. Um, you could find it and the Confutation and and uh, a number of other Lutheran documents at bookofconcord.org if you want to read it there. Um, the only thing to know is that the preface to the document can feel like a bit of a slog, and that's because it's written in a, a stately a stately court rhetoric. <laughs> Once you get to the articles, it actually gets really readable and, and easy to read. So if you tough it through, you'll, you'll be fine, or even just skip skip the preface and you'll do do great. Well, um, as I say, that's, that's really all the time we have for today on the Augsburg Confession, but I think, David, you're going to be hosting next week. What will we be discussing then? Yeah, I am, and we're going to be looking at um, a poet uh, named Robert Hayden. He... Uh, was uh, a poet laureate uh, in the late 70s, um, or the what 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 became known as poet laureate, uh, consultant in poetry to the Library of Congress, but uh, a very important um, mid and late 20th century um, American poet. Um, important because, well, among other things, he was an African American poet. But he insisted that his poetry was not simply about the African-American experience. And that was something that um, was controversial then, is controversial now. Um, We're going to be looking in particular uh, at at least one of his poems, Those Winter Sundays. Um, maybe, Maybe one or two more. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us for this week's discussion. If you have any comments, you can let us know by sending them to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or visit our website at www.christianhumanist.org. You can also find us on Twitter at CH Radio Network. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. On behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer, this is Matthew Block saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>